is light the things now hidden in darkness. And without further ado, to St. Fannin's Killaloo on behalf of our community, but to welcome amongst ourselves Father Peter McCurry. <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you for inviting me down. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for coming. And to all those who are watching on the, the webcam, as Paul said, maybe 65 or more. As I told him, it's the number who are still watching at the end of this that matters. <laughs> I haven't sent them all to bed. What I'd like to do is just share with you a little of my work, people I work with, and above all, how working with them has changed me. What was, if you don't expect to get a job, what's the point in staying on in school? So the issue that hit us very quickly wasn't homelessness, it was young people leaving school early. They were leaving school at the very latest, by the age of 12. They were hanging around the streets all day long. Most of their parents were unemployed, couldn't give them any money. So what were they doing? A little bit of robbing. And by the time they got to 16 and 17, they were doing an awful lot of robbing, and they were going to jail. So we opened a youth club for all the young people in the area. We opened a craft centre. They could make lovely crafts. They were able to sell them, make a few bob. And we were able to employ some of the young people making the crafts, and we'd sell them to the shops in town to pay their wages. Uh, I did that for a couple of years, and then I came across a kid sleeping on the street, nine years of age. So we said, Look, we have a youth club, we have a craft centre, we have employment schemes, let's get a house and open a little hostel. So we did. We got a house. We took in six boys up to the age of 16. Why boys? There were no girls on the streets in the 1970s. So I said, well, I'll run this for a couple of years and then I'll go off and do something else. So I ran that for a couple of years. Then the young people were leaving that 16, 16 and a half and going back on the streets. So we had to open a hostel for the over 16s. So I said, I'll run this for a couple of years, and then I'll go off and do something else. And then the numbers grew and grew and grew. We often had 15, 16 young people staying in a three-bedroom flat. So we had to get another house to take the overflow. Then the drug problem hit Dublin. And we had 14, 15-year-olds coming to us injecting heroin. So we had to open a detox centre. Then we had to open a drug-free hostel for the young people who had finished the detox. And then the Child Care Act came in, and we had to separate out the under-18s from the over-18s, we had to open another hostel. And that's the way it went. No big plan, we just went from year to year. And from that nine-year-old kid now sleeping on the street, we now have 25 hostels in Dublin and Kildare. We've almost 1,000 homeless people staying in the hostels every night. We have about 600 apartments, some of them in Clare, some of them in Kerry, some of them in Mayo, Limerick. Uh, Cork, all around the country really. We have about 600 apartments where we can give a homeless person the key of the door and say this is yours for the rest of your life. You never ever have to be homeless again. We have five drug and alcohol treatment centres. We have a lovely drop-in centre in the city centre of Dublin and we actually run two small schools. We have two small schools for young people who have been expelled from mainstream education. And the idea of that is that many of the people we deal with left school early and we're hoping that by keeping these young people in school, and it's very successful, 95% of them stay right through, 
we hope to prevent them becoming the homeless adults of the future. So that all happened by accident. Who are the people that we work with? You know, the majority of homeless people, a lot of people think homeless people all have a drug problem or an alcohol problem. And the majority of people we work with do have, but they're in a minority. Majority of people today who are becoming homeless are being evicted from the private rented sector, either because the rent has gone too high and can't afford it, or landlord says they're selling the house. You've got to move out. So the majority of people today don't have a draw, an addiction problem. They only have one problem. They don't have enough money to be able to go out and get themselves alternative accommodation. However, we work with people principally who have an addiction and are a mental health problem. One of the things I've learned from them is never to judge anybody. I'm thinking of a young fella lived with his mother and his sister, self and his sister very close together. His mother was an alcoholic. She was also a mental health patient. And when he was 12 years of age, his mother stabbed his sister to death in front of him. Now he just left home. We don't know where he was for five years. Turned up at our door when he was 17. And he lived with us now for the rest of his life because he now has serious mental health problems. Young fellow, 12 years of age, his mother was a drug user. And every morning before he went to school, he had to go into town, buy the heroin his mother needed for the day, and he had to come back and help her to inject it because she couldn't get the needle into the vein. So not surprisingly, by 15, he was injecting heroin and he was homeless. Our 14-year-old, every time he went home, his mother slammed the door in his face, said, go away, you're not wanted here. He lived with us for four years. When he was 18, he left us, went to England. Died in London from a drug overdose. They rang me, said, you go out and tell his parents. So I went out, knocked on the door. His mother answered the door. And I said, I'm here about Paddy. And she said, go away, I don't want to know. So you're growing up in a home where you're not wanted. How do you cope with that at 14 years of age? Well, you cope by taking drugs. Or, finally, a young lad knocked on my door late at night, 11 years of age, said, can I stay? I said, no, you can't stay. You're only 11, I said. And anyway, you have a home to go to. Can't go home, he said. Why can't you go home, I asked him. I just can't go home. Talked to him for a little bit, persuaded him to go home, put him into my car, drove him up to his house, said, there you are, in you go. Can't go in, he said. Why can't you go in, I asked him just can't go in. Talked to him for another little bit, discovered his alcoholic parents were sending him out into prostitution and he had to come back with a certain amount of money every night, otherwise he'd get a beating and he had no money that night. So many of the, young, many of the homeless people deal, we deal with have had horrific childhoods. Some of them take drugs. Why do they take drugs? They take drugs to forget to forget their childhood memories and to suppress the painful feelings associated with those memories and drugs work. Best thing ever. If you don't want to remember painful memories or feel painful feelings, the drugs blot out your memories, at least while you're under the influence of the drugs, and they mess up your feelings. 
So they take drugs to forget. So what happens when they come off drugs? When they come off drugs, all those memories and feelings come flooding back to the surface. And they come back with a vengeance. One young man, 15 years of age, said, Would you not think of giving up heroin? He said, When I stop taking heroin, I feel the pain too much. Another young man came down to our detox centre, came off drugs, came back to Dublin, was doing very well until his granny died. Went to the funeral of his granny, found himself sitting in the front row of the mourners beside the uncle who had abused him as a child. All the memories and feelings of abuse came flooding back. And in the middle of that funeral service, and I was up here at the altar, I saw him get up out of the bench and he literally ran down the center aisle of the church, out the front door, and the next day he killed himself. So for them, coming off drugs is hugely difficult. People look at them in the city center of Dublin, say, why don't they stop taking drugs? It's not as easy as that at all. For them to stop taking drugs, they need all the counseling, the therapy, and the support that we can give them over many years. So they're the young people that we uh, are working with. And they taught me not to judge. Because what am I doing? If I were to judge one of those homeless people, if I were to say, there's a little scumbag, there's a junkie robber, what am I doing? I'm actually judging myself. Because I know if I had been born into their circumstances, I would be exactly the same. And if they had been born into my circumstances, they would be the priest coming up to visit me in prison. I didn't choose the family I wanted to be born into. They didn't choose the family they wanted to be born into. It could so easily be the other way around. So when I look at them, maybe they're sitting in a corner stoned out of their face. <clears throat> maybe they're out robbing to feed their drug habit. But when I look at them, I see part of myself in them. Because there, but for the grace of God, go I. Second thing they've done for me is they've taught me, uh, they've, ma they've made me very grateful for what I received. I mean, I grew up in a good home. My parents cared for me, did their best for me, got me a good education. <clears throat> and growing up, I took all that for granted till I started hearing these homeless people's stories. And then I realized just how very, very lucky I had been. So they made me very grateful to my family. And also very grateful to God for the place that God gave me in this world. Because life is a lottery. None of us chooses where we're going to be. <clears throat> and they taught me that everything I have was given to me as a free gift. What did I do to deserve the family I was born into? To deserve the education I got? To deserve the health I've enjoyed? What did I do to deserve that? Nothing. <clears throat> it was handed to me as a gift. And once I realized <clears throat> everything I have was given to me as a gift, I can't judge anybody. Because when you judge somebody, what are you saying? You're saying, I'm a better person than you are. But once I realize everything is gift, all I can say is, well, I've received nicer gifts than most of those homeless people have received. That's all I can say. And that does not make me a better person than anybody else. <clears throat> So they made me very grateful, very grateful to my family and very grateful to God for the place that God gave me in this world. And they taught me that gratitude, 
Gratitude is the only solid foundation for our relationship with God. My prayer is just thanks to God for what I have been given. There's nothing else to say to God except thanks. Gratitude is the only foundation of our relationship with God. <clears throat> and if I, am, if, I appreciate, if I am grateful to God for, what, for where God has brought me with such loving care to where I am today, then I will trust that God will bring me with the same loving care to where I will be tomorrow. So gratitude for the past leads to trust for the future. And trust leads to surrender, to surrender to God, because we know that God's love is with us always. <clears throat> and surrender leads to peace. Surrender leads to a peace the world cannot give, a peace that is unshakable. And so my path to God has been gratitude, leading to trust, leading to surrender, and leading to, to peace. <clears throat> so it's a... <clears throat> One of the other things that they taught me was what is the hardest part of being homeless. I always thought the hardest part of being homeless was not having a bed for the night, having to find a doorway or something to sleep in, but it's not. You can get used to that. It's not comfortable, but you can get used to it. And then I thought, well, maybe it's being hungry and cold and penniless and bored all day long, nowhere to go, nothing to do. But it's not. You can get used to that. So what's the hardest part of being homeless? Well, we had a guy who lived with us for a few years. When he was 18, he left us, went to live with his girlfriend. After about a year, they split up, and he went onto the streets because he had nowhere else to go. After a couple of months in the streets, threw himself into the Liffey. To his dismay, he was rescued and he was brought to hospital. And I went up to see him in hospital. He said, Peter, he said, I can't go on living like this. And I said to him, What do you mean? And he said, I can't go on living knowing that nobody cares. And that's the hardest part of being homeless to know that you are unwanted, you are rejected, you are considered to be of little or no value. And it's living with that, the belief that you are of no value. That's the hardest part of being homeless. So people say to me, what do you do for homeless people? I say we can give some of them accommodation, give some of them counselling, we can give some of them drug treatment. But what we're really trying to do is to give them the message that they are just as important and just as valuable as anybody else. And if we're not giving them that message, we may as well pack up and go home because the rest isn't worth it. You know, a young homeless person, young homeless guy uh, came to me and he sat down and he said, Peter, he said, why do you bother with the likes of us? And you can hear the zero self-esteem in that question. And the answer is the answer Jesus gave to the Pharisees. When Jesus reached out to the outsiders, the marginalized, the rejected, the tax collectors and the sinners, and the Pharisees were condemning him, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the answer he gave them was, they too are sons of Abraham. In other words, they too have the same dignity as you have, who are criticizing me. 
And so, <clears throat> why do we bother with the likes of them? Because they too have this dignity, the dignity of being a child of God. And that nobody and nothing can take that dignity away from them. And that's what we want to communicate to them. And we communicate it by providing good services. Our drop-in center, state-of-the-art. It's, uh, it's effectively a cafe for homeless people. Homeless people can come in, they can spend the whole day there if they want to. Free tea, coffee sandwiches all day long. Some mornings free breakfast, other days free lunch. Televisions on the walls, computers they can use. And people say to me, that's a lovely, that's a lovely drop-in centre you have. And I say, yeah, of course it is. Why should homeless people not have as nice a cafe to come to as anybody who's in town shopping? And so what you provide for homeless people sends a message to them. And the message is, this is how we value you. This is what we think you're worth. So we try to provide services that respect the dignity of homeless people. What is it that homeless people want most of all? It's not money, not even a bed for the night. Those are very welcome. What they want most of all is to be respected. And that's what we try to, that's what we try to do. The other way we try to respect them is the way in which the staff deal with them. The staff treat them with respect. And they appreciate that. They come to me with all their complaints about the hostels. They complain about the food is lousy. And they complain that their mobile phone was robbed during the night. And, but at the end of it, they'll say, but the staff are great. And that's what I want to hear. Staff treat them with respect. The staff, staff communicate that they care. So it's all about giving homeless people that respect. People say to me, should you give money to people who are begging? And I say, I don't know. Sometimes I think you should, sometimes I think you shouldn't. But there's something you can do that's more important than giving money. When you pass by, say hello. That sounds stupid. What good on earth, what on earth good is that to a homeless person? Well, can you imagine sitting on the street begging? Hundreds of people passing you by. Where are they all looking? Anywhere, except at you. Looking down at their feet, looking straight ahead, looking the other way. So you're sitting there begging. Hundreds of people passing you by as if you were invisible. How does that make you feel? Well, that makes you feel like you don't exist. You're a non-person. So if somebody just goes up and says, hello, how are you? Uh, what's your name? What are you doing? You're treating them as a person. And I said that to a group of women once, and a woman came up to me uh, a few weeks later and said, I was at that talk you gave, and I decided to try it. So I was walking along with my little three-year-old son. I saw a guy begging, and I gave my son two euro. And I said, now I want you to go up and put that in the cup in front of that man sitting down up there. So up she went. The young fella said, hello, how are you? What's your name? It's freezing cold. How's business? You know, a little bit of small talk. And then she said, look, my son has something he wants to give you. A little fellow went up and he put the two-year-old into the cup. And the homeless man put his hand in his pocket and he took out a Mars bar. And he said, and I have something I want to give your son. Now, what was he responding to there? It wasn't the two-year-old, though he still made a profit. <laughs> but it was the fact that he was treated as a human being, and that's what it's about. 
People sometimes say to me, I won't give him money, I'll buy him a sandwich. And I say, no, don't. The last thing in the world you should do is buy them a sandwich. How do you know they want a sandwich? And maybe 10 people in the past hour bought them a sandwich and they're sick of sandwiches. Why don't you go up and ask them what they want? And it's the asking that's the most important part. And if they say, I'd like a sandwich, terrific. Up, off you go, buy them a sandwich. But they might say, I prefer the money. And I say, why don't you give them the money? You don't want to spend it anyway on a sandwich. And they'll say, but they're only going to spend it on drugs. And I say, so what? If you have a drug problem, you're going to get your money for your drugs one way or the other. Isn't it better they beg for their drug money than go and rob some poor lady's handbag? So I have no problem giving somebody a euro or two, even if I'm fairly sure they may be going to, uh, to, uh, to spend it on drugs. So when I'm passing by a homeless person, I often say, look, I'm sorry, I don't have any change on me. You know what the answer often is? Well, that's okay, thanks. What's the thanks for? The thanks is for just not having passed by and ignored them. Another young fellow said to me, the very thought there might be a God depresses me. I was trying to figure out what he meant. I'm used to young people telling me they don't believe in God. That's par for the course these days. But this was going one step further. The very thought there might be a God depresses me. I came to realize what he was trying to say. He felt he was a bad person. He had broken every commandment in the book and one or two others they forgot to put in. He had done everything wrong. And so he said, said to himself, if there's a God up there, God is looking down at me. And God is saying, there's someone I couldn't love. And if he died and went to meet God, he thought God would say to him, get away from me, you bad person. I don't want anything to do with you. Now, I knew that kid. And that kid had grown up in one of those abusive households. He, was, he, he was suffered abuse, he suffered violence, and he just suffered extreme neglect as a child. And I'm saying to myself, if there is a God up there, God is looking down. God must have a big warm place in God's heart for this kid because of what he has suffered as a child. And if he went to meet God, God must have a big warm welcome for him because of what he has suffered as a child. Now what he was believing in was a God of the law, a God who lays down laws and who tells us that our relationship with God depends on how we obey those laws. And that was the God I was brought up to believe in, a God of the law. And now I reject that God. And for me now, God is a God of compassion, a God who cares, who cares about this kid and his suffering, who cares about all the parts of our lives, particularly those where we are suffering, a God of compassion. And that's the God that Jesus revealed. Jesus lived with the poor, basically, most of his life, or most of his public life. It's the God of compassion that Jesus revealed. Jesus, we're told in the gospel, had nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. He survived on alms that people gave him as he went from town to town, preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus associated with those who were rejected, 
those who are unwanted, those who are pushed aside to the margins of society. Jesus revealed a God of compassion. And so God I believe in now is that God of compassion. And those homeless people I deal with, I think God must have extraordinary compassion for them. And the God that I believe in now was given to me not as a private gift to keep to myself. No, I am called to reveal the God of compassion to the world. And I am called to grow into the image and likeness of God, the God of compassion. How do I reveal the God of compassion to the world? I can only reveal the God of compassion to the world by being the compassion of God. And so that's what I'm called, that's what we are called to do, to grow into that image and likeness of God, the God of compassion. You know, the poor offer us the greatest gift that anyone can offer us. The poor, the homeless, the refugees, people in need, people who are lonely, people who are struggling, they offer us the greatest gift that anyone can offer us. They invite us to open our hearts to include them in our love. And if we open our hearts to include them in our love, we become more loving persons and therefore we become more like God. And no one can offer us a gift of becoming more like God, a greater gift than the gift of becoming more like God. Another thing they have taught me <clears throat> is to read the Gospels. Uh, I used to read the Gospels thinking that Jesus came to tell me how to live my life. And if I live my life according to his laws and commandments, then I will be rewarded for a, for a place with a place in heaven. I no longer believe that's what Jesus came to do. I believe that Jesus came to show us how to live together as the family of God. You know, every human being is a child of God. So God's family is the whole human race. Now, in a family of four children, the parents don't give three of the children a nice big steak for their dinner and give the fourth child bread and jam. No, whatever food is available, everyone shares. And yet in our world today, one billion people go to bed hungry every night. And every one of those one billion people is God's beloved child. No parent wants to see their child going to bed hungry every night. And God does not want to see God's children going to bed hungry every night. And in a family of four children, the parents don't give three of the children a nice warm bed and tell the fourth child to sleep out in the back shed. No, whatever rooms are available, everybody piles in. And yet in the family of God, in every city in the world, there are people living on the street. No parent wants their child to be living on the street. And God does not want God's children to be living on the street. And so <clears throat> Jesus came to show us how to live as the family of God, the family over which God can rule happily. And that's what caused him to be killed. Jesus came and he asked us to share. 
He asked the rich to share what they have with those who are poor. And they didn't want to do it. And they plotted to get rid of him. And he asked those in authority to use their authority for the common good, to help everyone under their rule, to help especially those who are poor. And they didn't want to do it. They wanted to use their own authority to boost their own self-image and to boost their own coffers. And so they plotted the religious and the political authorities. They plotted to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus was crucified because he challenged the way people were living. Today, there are many who do not want to share what they have. And there are many rulers, we see them all on our news every night, who use their authority to maintain power and not for the good of the, their, their, their people. So Jesus came and showed us how we were to live together as the family of God, by caring for each other, by sharing with each other, by reaching out to each other, reaching out to those in need, reaching out to those who are suffering, reaching out to those who are in distress. That is what Jesus came and told us what to do. And that's what the early church did. And the early church, when the, the pagans looked at the early Christian communities, their spontaneous reaction was, see how they love one another. They could not understand the self-sacrificing love that the Christians had for each other. And they were only imitating their, their master, Jesus, who gave everything up for us, gave even his own life, what was most precious to him, gave up his own life for our sake. And they were imitating him by giving their own lives for the sake of their brothers and sisters. And that's what we are all called to do. We are the Christian community in this part of the world at this time. And we are called to be that community that shows the self-sacrificing love that we have for each other. It's a <clears throat> another thing young homeless, young homeless person said to me. He said, uh, came in, said, can I close the door? I knew this was trouble. <laughs> so I said, okay, come in, close the door. He sat down, I think he put his feet up on the desk and he said, Peter, you won't give up on me, will you? Now, I can't remember what it was. Maybe he had committed some crime and he was going to go to jail. Or maybe he'd been drug-free for a while and he had relapsed. But he was afraid I was going to say, look, we've worked with you for many years. You've let yourself down. You've let us down. There's no point in us continuing with you. He was afraid we'd say that. He was hoping we'd say, which we did, of course, no, we'll stay with you. If you go to jail, we'll visit you when you're in jail. When you come out, we'll have somewhere for you to live. No, we will stay with you. But the question, you won't give up on me, will you, reminded me of God. God is the God who never gives up on us, who's always there for us. God's love is infinite, and it's also unconditional. There's nothing we can do, and nothing anybody else can do, to diminish God's love for us 
one little iota. So God doesn't give up on us. And we can't give up on anybody else. Yeah, we've had people drug-free for years and they relapse. Right, we're going to look after them. We're going to continue working with them. We'll help them get off drugs again. Anybody who comes into our services, we never give up on them. If somebody's in a hostel and they're acting out, and maybe they smash all the windows, we don't kick them out. We move them to another hostel with fewer windows. <laughs> so we never put anybody out. It's our policy, we do not put people onto the street. We want to take people off the street, not put them onto the street. So anybody who comes into our service, they're with us for life. They're with us for as long as they want our service and our support. And that's what God is there for us. God will never, ever give up on us, never, ever abandon us. And God's love will continue with us through the ups and downs, no matter what we do. God's love will continue with us through all the ups and downs of our lives. And that's where, that end where I begin, gratitude to God. Gratitude to God for never giving up on me, for continuing to love me, continuing to pour out gifts on me. Gratitude to God for the past. Trust in God, therefore, for the future. Surrender to God, whatever may happen. Nothing can affect my peace because my peace is built on the solid foundation of the unconditional love of God. Once we have that unconditional love of God, nothing can affect us, no matter what happens in our lives. That's the rock on which our peace is built. So I'd better shut up there. Thank you for listening. If anybody would like to ask a question, make a comment, share an observation, criticize anything I've said, please feel free to do that as well. First question and then second. Do I ever get discouraged? Uh, we've had hard times. I do about one funeral every month. It's usually a young person who has died from an overdose or died from suicide. That's very hard. Sometimes I visit the prisons every weekend, meet lots of people there that we know who have gone to jail. That's very disheartening. But I also meet lots of people who have done well. We have five or six people who are employed by us who are themselves homeless drug users. They came through it all. They're living, they're fantastic, living a great life. Uh, do I ever get discouraged? No, I get angry. I'm angry all the time. <laughs> I'm angry because we are failing homeless people. Our society is failing homeless people. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I could give you loads of examples, but we haven't time, but I get angry. It's the anger that keeps me going. And I was talking, uh, uh, on Scarif Radio this morning <laughs> they did a, an interview with me and I was saying what we need today is a minister for housing who's angry <laughs> who's angry enough to get things done angry enough to bang heads together and get the, uh, get the, the solutions to homelessness uh, into place so no I don't get discouraged I get angry and I always say when I lose my anger I'll be no use to homeless people yeah I'm angry I'm glad to be angry. We often think of anger as something negative, something to be avoided, because it can often, it can often explode in anger, in, in, 
explode destructively. But anger is actually a very positive emotion. Anger and love go together. You cannot love somebody who is suffering unnecessarily without being angry at what's causing the suffering. So I'm angry and I tell all our new staff, I hope in six months time you'll be angry because you should be angry. We need to be angry if we're going to bring about change. So no, I never get discouraged. I've learned you can't solve everybody's problems. You can only do the little. No person can solve everyone's problems, but everyone can solve someone's problems. That's what I believe in. Yeah, most of the suffering in the world is caused by other people. You know, their suffering is caused by other people. It may be caused by their family, their parents. It may be caused by a, a neighbor who abused them. It, it, most of the suffering of homeless people has been caused by people, not by God. And so God's request to us is go out and relieve that suffering. Where is God present in the midst of suffering? God is present in the actions of those people who are there trying to relieve that suffering. You know, some of my heroes are Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders, they go into war zones where people are suffering terribly and they work there to try and alleviate the, the medical uh, uh, consequences of the, uh, of the war. And they do that at great sacrifice to themselves. That's where God is present in the middle of the suffering that we people often create. That's where God is present. So for me, God is saying to me and to all of us, I think, get out there and relieve that suffering. I don't want my children to suffer. I know they're suffering, but I don't want them to suffer. Go out there and do what you can to lift that suffering off their shoulders. You know, young people sometimes say to me, how do you know there's a God? I say, I'll tell you how to know. Imagine somebody sitting at a, a, on the side of a river, lovely sunny day, enjoying themselves, if you can imagine that in this weather. And there's a little child playing on the riverbank. And the next moment, the child falls into the river. And the person at the side of the river jumps in, pulls the child out and saves their life. Now I ask the question, what will the parents of that child do? Well, the first thing they'll do is they'll go to the hospital or wherever and reassure themselves that their child is all right. What's the next thing they'll do? The next thing they'll do is they will want to find that person. They will want to find them to thank them for what they have done for their child. So I say to young people, you want to know if there's a God? No point looking up in the sky. Look around you. Look around at the suffering of so many people around you. Reach out. Try and take some of that suffering off their shoulders. And what will God do? God will want to find you, to thank you for what you have done for God's children. And when God finds you, then you will meet God. And then you will know that God exists. So I say you will not find God in your churches. You will not communicate with God in your prayers unless you first of all find God in the suffering of the people around you. So I think that's what uh, God is asking of all of us. I don't believe in evil in the form of a Satan or devils or anything like that, no. Uh, there is evil in all of us. We are all a mixture of good and evil. Which of those, which of those will 
will, will dominate in our lives depends which of them we feed. If we do good things, the good in our lives will dominate. If we don't, if we do evil things, the evil in our lives will dominate. But we're all a mixture of good and evil. I've bar buried some, <laughs> some really dangerous people. But I say at the funeral, right, we all know in this church that this man has done terrible things. But nobody is a one-dimensional person. No one is defined by what they have done. And this person, a lot of evil, but also a lot of good. And that good was hidden. And that good was over, over, uh, overruled by the evil that he'd done. But we're all that person. We are all a mixture of good and evil. And so, yes, I believe there's evil in the world, but the evil is within us. It's not something outside of us. And we have to uh, let the good, let the good dominate in our lives. Uh, and if we let the good dominate in our lives, the evil will be forgiven and will be forgotten. Can you imagine a parent who says to their child, I never ever want to see you again. If you telephone, we'll slam the telephone down without answering. If you write, we'll tear up the letter without reading it. Well, I think I'd report that person <laughs> to the uh, child authorities. That's a bad, that's a bad parent. And yet, when we say people, uh, people, God sends people to hell, that's what we're talking about. God as a parent who will do that to people. So no, God forgives us. God forgives us no matter what we do. Can you imagine two children looking up at the stars? Lovely sunny day. And one of the children says, those stars are five miles away. And the other child says, no, they're, no, they're not stupid. They're 10 miles away. And the kids have a big row over whether the stars are five or 10 miles away. What are the kids trying to say? They're trying to say the stars are a long, long way away but they can't understand what 174 trillion miles is. Can you? And so they use concepts, five miles and 10 miles, which to the children mean a long way away, but are totally inadequate to express how far the stars are away from us. And so we talk about God. We talk about God as compassion, but God isn't compassion. Because what we understand by compassion comes from our human experience, experience of Mother Teresa, the experience of my neighbor in Ballymun who looked after his paralyzed wife for 30 years, never took a day off. That's compassion. But God's compassion is infinitely beyond our compassion. And so the word compassion doesn't even begin to express the compassion of God for us. And so it is with God's forgiveness. People say to me, will God forgive Hitler and Stalin? Maybe they might say, no, Putin. <laughs> and I say, of course God will. They say, how can you say that? And I say, we find it very hard to forgive Hitler or Stalin, but let's not bring God down to our level. God's forgiveness is infinitely beyond what we are capable of forgiving. So I believe that God forgives us. God does not punish us. God forgives us. So I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in punishment. And I also, I believe in heaven, but heaven is not a reward. You know, when you die and go to heaven, you're not getting anything. 
that you don't already have. Because what you have now is God's infinite and unconditional love. And God can't give you anything more than that. And we can't ask God for anything more than that. And when we die, what, we still have God's infinite and unconditional love, but we experience it in a different way. And so you already have your reward. You already have your reward, the infinite, unconditional love of God. That already belongs to each one of us. And so there's nothing else God can give us. So when we die, all we do is experience that in a different way, face to face, no longer mediated to us through the gifts that God gives us. And so, yeah, I don't believe in hell. I do believe in heaven. I do believe that God is, loves us so much that God could not bear to be parted from us in any way. And so God forgives us. And you read the Gospels. I mean, there's so much about forgiveness. Peter says to Jesus, Master, Rabbi, must, must I forgive seven times? And seven, as you probably know, is the number that denotes perfection. So Peter is saying, must my forgiveness be perfect? And Jesus says, no, not for seven times. Seventy times, seven times. Your forgiveness must go way beyond perfection. Because God's forgiveness for us goes way beyond perfection. No, he's not condoning him by forgiving him. Uh, but he's not going to, he will forgive him. And when we all get to heaven, we will be living in the grace of heaven and we will be full of forgiveness as well. So no, he's not, uh, he's not condoning him. He asks us to reach out and help those people who are suffering from Putin's actions. And we are doing that in Ireland. And I think that's terrific. I'm delighted to see us welcoming so many Ukrainians here. But no, God is not condoning what he's doing. Uh, but God is not going to thrust Putin in, away from him uh, in, a irreconcilable, uh, in an irreconcilable way. Well, I would say to the rest of us, we need to support them. The most important thing they need is support. And as I say, that question that the young fellow asked me, uh, you won't give up on me, will you? They need our support. No matter how difficult giving them that support may be, their behavior may be difficult. Uh, they may not be appreciate our support, but giving them our support is what we most uh, need to do. And that's what brings people through the darkness is the support of somebody close to them, the support of somebody who isn't going to give up on them. I think that's what brings them through. The, uh, in the area of addiction, I know we, we work with some young people who have no links, they have no family. Their family, they've cut, out, cut themselves off from their family for very good reasons. They don't want anything to do with their family. And they have no roots. They're like a flower with no roots. And it's very, very difficult for them to deal with their addiction. We all need that support in times of darkness. We need the support of other people. And that's where we all come in. I think many people need to go out and reach out for help. I think a lot of people need counselling who uh, maybe don't appreciate the need counselling and uh, resist the idea of counselling. But if you're in a dark place, 
we need to be able to talk to somebody. The solution to many of our problems is communication, communication, communication. We found that if a young person can talk about what's, uh, what's troubling them, just the very talking about it can lift uh, many of those troubles off their shoulders. So it's about communication. So I would encourage people who are going through that dark time, find someone you can talk to. It may be the Samaritans, maybe Pieta House, maybe a friend, maybe a local priest, it may be a teacher. Find someone that you can talk to. The very talking is healing in itself. And we have the responsibility to be listening, to be there for them when they want to talk. So I would say, communicate, communicate, communicate. That lifts a lot of the problems off people's shoulders. It doesn't take them away, but it helps them to cope. Do we get funding from the state? Is that the question? Yeah, we do. Some, not enough. <laughs> we have a budget this year of about 48 million. We have 550 full-time staff, about 250 part-time staff. God knows how many volunteers. Yeah, we, get, uh, we have a budget this year of 48 million. We get 36 million from the state. But to keep our services all running, we need to raise another 12 million. We have a great little fundraising team. That's how it came to be called the Peter McVeary Trust. It used to be called the Arupe Society, but nobody ever heard of that. Did you ever hear of that? So our fundraisers were all the time explaining what this Arupe Society is. Arupe was a famous Jesuit that we named it after. They spent all their time explaining what, uh, what this is. Uh, so they came to me and they said, would you mind if we renamed it the Peter McVeary Trust? Because people then will know exactly what we're doing. <clears throat> and so I said to them, well, you normally call something after somebody when they're dead. <laughs> Is this wishful thinking on your part? <laughs> and they said, no, it just would make our life easier. So very reluctantly, uh, I agreed that they could do that. So that's where the name came from, Peter McVeary Trust. Uh, so, yeah, we, we do get a lot of money from the state, but we have to supplement it with fundraising. Our drop-in centre doesn't get a penny from the state. That's totally funded by fundraising. Our detox centre costs about three quarters of a million a year. We get about 200,000 from the state. The rest has to be uh, done from fundraising. So, yeah, we, 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 we do a lot of fundraising, yeah. Yeah. My answer is that those refugees who are coming from Ukraine and many of the ones coming from elsewhere have suffered enormously. They're fleeing death, potential for death. They're fleeing persecution. They're fleeing abject uh, poverty as many people are in Ukraine at the moment. I think we should welcome them. Uh, they're, they have suffered far more than any homeless person in Ireland has suffered. So I think we need to do both. Look after our own and look after the refugees. And we could do that. If the political will was there, we could do that. Uh, you know, the government have committed to buying 500 modular units. I said to the minister, buy 5,000. 
you know, we could do it, why don't we? And he has, he has committed to doing it now. We have, uh, you know, everywhere you go, and I'm sure Killaloo is no exception, there are empty buildings, boarded up, lying there. Let's bring them back into use. Now, Waterford Council, last year they brought 45 of those empty buildings back into use. But 16 local authorities brought none back into use, or one back into use. Now, if every local authority brought 45 or 50 into use every year, we'd have an extra 1,500 residential units every year coming on stream. There are 25,500 Airbnbs advertised in this country. Most of them are not regulated. I'm saying to, to the government, you know, make it illegal to advertise an Airbnb unless they conform to the registration and, if necessary, planning permissions. And they won't, most of them won't do that. Uh, so that could bring another 10 or 15,000 residential units back into use. We can house our homeless people and we can also house our refugees if the political will was there. Now I actually support the Minister, I think his policies are good policies. Uh, he's pl planning to, to build 9,000 social houses every year, I think that's terrific. But my criticism is, I see no sense of urgency. I see no sense of crisis. Everything is going at a snail's pace. And so, I want, the, I want a Minister for Housing who's angry. Who's angry enough to bash heads together and get things done. Get those local authorities to bring back 50 units every year into, into use. Bang heads together in the planning process to speed it up. Uh, you know, we can do both. It shouldn't be an either or. Uh, and because it's an either-or at the moment, yeah, there is developing uh, a strong racist uh, dimension in, in our society. Get on to your local authority, get on to your TDs. Uh, I was talking to the students this morning in St. Anne's uh, Community College, and I said, write to your TD, write to the Minister for Housing, tell him you want action, you want the right to housing into the Constitution. You get on. Homelessness is a political problem. It has to be solved politically. Yeah, and we all have to put pressure on our politicians, on our decision makers, to speed things up, to get over this, uh, this apathy that exists uh, and go and treat this crisis uh, with the urgency which it requires. So yeah, get on to your local TDs, get on to your local councillors, uh, and uh, perhaps get on to... Uh, the minister. Email the minister. Tell him you want action. You want action fast. And they're scared. They're scared because they know that housing is going to bring them down at the next election if they don't uh, do something very radical between now and the next election. Uh, before just thanking Peter and asking him perhaps to say a prayer with us. Peter, I, I have to say you have a very Christmas face. And I'm sure Santa Claus. I'm sure in the MacVerry Trust and amongst the personnel and the homeless, you go around wishing each other uh, a happy Christmas. And uh, you like Christmas, or am I wrong? You wouldn't address that, would you? I hate Christmas. 
it's become so commercialized, so much pressure on families. I just wish we could abolish Christmas. Christmas for homeless people is a terrible time. Many of them tell me they'd like to fall asleep on the 1st of December and wake up on the 1st of January because Christmas puts huge pressure on them. They want to have clothes, new clothes, the same as everybody else, but they can't afford it. They might want to buy presents for their brothers and sisters, but they can't afford it. And they feel their aloneness at Christmas. Their image of Christmas is of families sitting around the fire, enjoying themselves, laughing, pulling crackers, and they're excluded from that. They can't be with their families. So while homelessness is a lonely experience much of the year, homeless people experience their aloneness very intensely at Christmas time. They know they are excluded from what they believe everybody else is enjoying. And so it's a very difficult time for homeless. And because they don't like Christmas, I don't like Christmas. So Almighty God, we thank you. Thank you for what you have given to each one of us. We thank you for the love that created us, the love that continued to be with us through every moment of our lives, the love that accompanied us through the dark times of our lives. We thank you for all that. And we ask you to help us to repay you for your kindness to us by our kindness to one another. We pray for all those who are suffering, those who are depressed, those who are lonely, those who are refugees, those who are hungry in our world, those who do not have clean water, our access to medicines. We pray for all those who are suffering in our world that we may be able to take a little bit of that suffering off some of their shoulders. That's the gift that you have given to each one of us. That's the grace you ask us to give to other people. And we try at this Christmas time particularly, when you came, to give yourself for our sake, that we might give ourselves for the sake of those of our fellow citizens who need us to be with them. Amen. <laughs>